Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a crime of passion. It was a violent crime. Uh, Very violent. I mean, she'd been stabbed multiple times, and there's just blood all over the place. So I walked down to the, all the way down to there and I asked around to ask what was going on, what had happened. They said that uh, Helen had been stabbed to death. Helen was Helen Nardi, a 55-year-old mother and grandmother. Helen was stabbed 26 times by four different weapons, an ice pick, scissors, screwdriver, and knife and left dead on the floor of her Palm Bay trailer on a steamy July evening in 1983. Helen's lifestyle, known only to some, could have certainly elicited anger and maybe even murderous feelings. But with no immediate suspects, homicide detectives worked the crime scene for clues. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast. Once again, a warning. Murder on the Space Coast is, well, about a murder. And things can get pretty graphic. It may not be suitable for sensitive or younger listeners. Palm Bay sits in the southern half of 72-mile-long Brevard County, hugging the Atlantic Ocean. The sprawling central Florida city was originally called Tillman when a small settlement was established at the mouth of Charkey Creek in 1875. The name was changed about 50 years later, and in 1960, it became a city of 2,000 residents. That number would grow in the coming years, once US-1, one of two main thoroughfares, was completed. In 1990, it became the most populous and most diverse city in Brevard, with nearly equal parts white, black, and Hispanic. Just a few years before that, Palm Bay ended up in the national spotlight, and not for a good reason. A retired librarian, William Cruz, went on a shooting spree at two shopping centers on Babcock Road, killing six, including two police officers. But back to 1983, when Palm Bay was a sleepy city, very rarely in the headlines. And back to July 13th, 1983, to be more specific, and Helen Nardi's bloody trailer. Blood was everywhere, the rug, the bed, the walls, the ceiling. But interestingly enough, there was not really a whole lot of other evidence to process. There were no prints on the weapons. Police did find a couple of pubic hairs on Helen's body and some handprints and fingerprints on the walls. One of those partial palm prints, only one, belonged to neighbor Gary Bennett, who had been no stranger to the police, according to retired Lieutenant Richard Adams, who supervised Helen Nardi's murder investigation. I knew his father, I knew his mother, and I knew of Gary because of his criminal activity, the things he was involved in as a juvenile. I never arrested him or uh, had any involvement in an arrest except uh, during the courses of some of the arrested, some of the officers, investigators would come in and talk about him. Working in that area as a patrolman, years previously I'd interacted with uh, 
both his mother and father, not extensively, just as a, uh, an officer. So I knew of him. When Gary lived in West Virginia, I know he spent time in a juvenile home for which I'm trying to find out the details. He also had run-ins with the police on other occasions, and I've been trying to find details regarding those. He says he doesn't really remember any of those cases. One incident that he does remember, however, is an arson charge in Palm Bay at the age of 17, when he and a buddy started a fire behind a drugstore where Gary worked. I asked him about it. I used to work for records, Jack Eckert, and I had a seizure in there, and that's where that scar right there come from, me hitting, uh, falling and hitting the can opener. One day I had gone over and I'd seen a friend of mine that lived in the trailer park behind Eckert's, and um, we were walking along and he said, uh, hey, what's that right there? I said, oh, that's Eckert's. I said, uh, in fact, I said, that's the place where we kept garbage at in the back back there. I said, there's a whole bunch of uh, garbage back there. And I went back there and showed him that it was basically nothing but cardboard and all that, all that. He said, watch this. And he took a cigarette because we both smoked. He took a cigarette and he lit the cigarette. He put it in between a pack of matches like that and he threw it in there. Well, the next thing I knew, uh, we walked down to my house, and I didn't even think anything about it. I thought I was going to go out. We got down there, and uh, Leroy Dunning... Remember, Leroy Dunning is the same Leroy Dunning that all these years later is now the lead homicide cop trying to find Helen Nardi's killer. We got down there, and uh, Leroy Dunning shows up at my house uh, uh, that evening talking about the kid told his mother that I tried to burn the place down. I had told him I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. And... If I would have done it, I would have said so, but I, I had no, I, I didn't know what he was talking about. And it turned out the kid was trying to get out of trouble with his mom. According to Gary, it was an innocent prank that he was somehow blamed for. But retired Florida Department of Law Enforcement agent and profiler Tom Davis says arson, even when it seems like a prank, could be a warning sign of things to come. And that came up recently while we were talking about this case. I want to stop you right there for yes, a second. Sir. We know that Gary Bennett, in this case, uh, he did have a fire in, in, in his background. Uh, yeah. It's a sort of a criminal mischief thing. But, you know, is that a red flag for you guys? Yes. The Menninger Triangle is one of the Menninger homicidal triangle. Dr. Menninger, a behavioral scientist, a psychiatrist, forensic psychiatrist, did extensive research and found that male offenders particularly serial offenders, but offenders in general, we've seen this, uh, they'll have a history uh, at about 12 or 13 of fire setting, enuresis, bedwetting, and cruelty to animals, cats in particular. That having been said, we notice that with fire setting, uh, it'll be inadequate and, and uh, minimal uh, in certain Dis, and primarily the disorganized offender. That offender will set a newspaper on fire against a concrete block wall. A lot of those never get reported until years later when you go back and do historical checking. So that's what I mean by fire setting, the Menninger Triangle or the Homicidal Triangle. That's one of the three legs on that. Okay, so back to 1983. There is a palm print a few pubic hairs, so now what? And the investigation proceeded like that. I mean, there were different angles. We had different people going out looking at different things, canvas and neighborhoods, talking to people. Adams says one of the people they spoke to was Gary Bennett, 
who had shown up at the crime scene to try and find out what had happened. One of the questions police were trying to determine was the approximate time of the murder. For a variety of reasons, which we will touch on later, they presumed it was during the early morning hours of July 13th. Gary told the police he had been down at the nearby Magic Mart and drinking beer with a buddy for a while before taking a six-pack down to the train tracks to drink. He did tell them that he saw a white car in the area that night with Texas plates that he did not recognize. His buddy, William Pollieri, who worked the overnight and let Gary sweep up on most nights, told police he saw the same car. Remember that white car. It comes up again later. There was something else at the crime scene. Remember the four weapons? Ice pick and scissors and screwdriver and knife? Well, the handles to the ice pick and the knife had broken off. Anyway, I tried to pick Tom Davis's brain about this and about all the blood. We both agreed, as did original homicide cops on the scene, that there had to be some sort of wild struggle and that the killer probably had some obvious wounds, especially to his hands. If that's the case, Tom, then it's pretty likely that whoever did this would have had some blood on them. Yes. Right? You weren't going to walk out of this, you know, totally clean, right? You would not, unless I would expect some clean-up or attempted, and I say attempted, half-hearted efforts, i.e. weapon or weapons disposed of in a sink, but oftentimes with blood left on. The offender, I would look for stab wounds on the offender's hands. Uh, I've seen over the years, in many cases, where the offender, particularly, I believe, one of the instruments in case in point here, uh, actually the handle broke off. If you end up with a knife uh, described in the uh, police reports, it has no uh, protection to keep the hand from sliding down onto the blade. So it's very unusual, quite frankly, to not find some type of a laceration on a thumb, a finger, or something. Not always, but certainly something I would examine for. Tom made an up-and-down motion with his hand as if stabbing and showed how the hand would slide down to the blade itself. Ouch. What the broken handle meant must have been obvious to the police back then because shortly after finding Helen, Leroy Dunning asked his people to check with all the hospitals in the area to see if anyone had come in with wounds on their hands like that. He also scoured the area for any sign of bloody clothes or a trail leading from the trailer. But both were dead ends. So with only a partial palm print to go on, homicide agents returned the following morning to talk with Helen's daughter Mary and her husband Kermit Parkins. Yes, the guy who was also having sex with Helen, his mother-in-law. Remember, it was Mary who found the body, and officers responded to the scene noted in the police narrative of events that she kept blurting out, it wasn't Kermit, he didn't do it, it wasn't Kermit. She also was quick to point out abrasions on her mother's knees and said it looked like someone had dragged her. Reactions to tragedy vary wildly from one person to the next. But according to the police reports, some officers wanted it noted that Mary was laughing while talking to police about her mother's murder. They also documented that her husband, Kermit, the sexual partner of the victim, also made a very flippant remark about how it was certainly a bad day. Not only had Helen been murdered, but the Atlanta Braves had lost a baseball game as well. 
The police also knew that Mary and Kermit would stand to gain Helen's life insurance, which they paid for. Although on the other hand, they would also lose out on Helen's weekly social security checks, which they managed. In police reports, the investigators described Kermit as foxy and not overly cooperative. Still, the next day, Dunning sees Mary and takes her into his car for an interview. They were not strangers. The lead detective in this case used to rent a trailer to Kermit and his child bride. He was their landlord for three years. When he was being deposed after Helen's murder, Dunning said he knew about Helen's past, about how she used to trade her children to landlords for sexual favors in lieu of paying rent. You would think the fact that he was Mary's landlord would be enough to have Dunning removed from the case. I would. But his old boss, Lieutenant Adams, says, mm, nah. I heard, I heard that same thing, but you have to keep in mind that Roy ended up being the primary investigator and the person that made the charges. Okay. But he had so many other investigators working with him, overseeing, including myself, Sergeant Bob Swartz, what he was doing. He didn't act outside of what we were guiding him, and plus after the arrest was made, the state attorney. I mean, he had, pretty, he had a lot of supervision. As far as his relationship with the victim's family, uh, that never came into play in the investigation. And if it would have, and it was problematic, I would have intervened and put another investigator. Hmm. I couldn't tell if Adams really believes that Dunning could be totally impartial in the case or if he is just protecting the memory of a co-worker. Well, inappropriate or not, when Mary wasn't proclaiming her husband's innocence, she was pointing them in another direction. That's right. At Peewee, Gary Bennett. Why don't you look into the Bennett boy? She told her old landlord, he's got mental problems. Mental problems? I guess that's what they called epilepsy back in 1983. And, you know, when were you first diagnosed with that? Was it, uh, about when I was uh, nine years old, ten years old, something like that. What happened? You had, was it a seizure or something? Or? No, I had been bitten on the knee by a coral snake. And they didn't know what type of snake I had been bit by. And they, they used my butt for a pincushion. And the next thing we knew, a few years later, I'm having seizures left and right. At, at first, they couldn't even pick it up on a EKG. No, EEG. And then later on, they could pick it up on the EEG. That's where it originated from. Yep, I researched it. And Google hasn't failed me yet. Coral snake bites can indeed cause seizures similar to epilepsy. Weird, right? Anyway... That made Gary prone to these horrific grand mal seizures. It sounds like they didn't really know a lot about epilepsy. And they even said, you know, maybe he could have done this while he was having a seizure and then he forgot Impossible. or he didn't remember. Impossible. I'm an, I have grand mal epilepsy. When I have a seizure, I'm laying on the floor and I'm flopping like a fish. I couldn't hurt myself, more or less hurt you. No way. And they asked you about blackouts. Yes, they asked me about that and I said... Uh, you know, uh, well, sure, you know, when I have a seizure, I don't remember anything about the seizure. Sometimes right. I feel them coming on. But no, uh, as, as far as just uh, did, uh, did I do this or do that yesterday and uh, completely black out about it? No, that's never happened. Right. Okay, so that explains that. But there is still the question of the print that matches Gary's left ring finger and palm and why it was on Helen Nardi's closet door and molding. Now, the thing is, there were other prints in the home as well, 
including Mary and Kermit Parkins. But what intrigued police about Gary's print is where they found it. It was on the molding and door of a sliding glass door that sat partially in the hallway and opened into Helen's bedroom. It was also pretty low, in a strange spot about 24 inches off the floor. And that set off some alarms. While his palm print being in the home was not a great mystery, Gary explained. He knew Helen from around the neighborhood, had been in her house just a few days earlier. I was on my way to my grandmother's house. And like I said, this had been 33 years ago. Yeah. But to the best of my recollection, I was on my way to my grandmother's house. I had left my dad's house. When I got up to about Palm Bay Road, I ran into Helen and she had a big grocery bag. And I asked her, I said, what do you got? And she said, oh, just some things. And I said, well, here, let me carry it for you. I said, where are you living at? And she said, right over here in the trailer over here. So I got the bag and I carried it in. She showed me the trailer. We talked for a good half hour, something like that. Like about what kind of stuff? To eat? <clears throat> I know it's a long time ago. your mom and dad. Um, this is uh, this trailer is I'm only paying like a hundred dollars a month rent for it. And uh, how have you been and all that? How's the fishing been? Just, just normal stuff. Yeah. That's it. At that time, were you aware of her other kids and how she sold them for no, rent? No, I had nothing. So you thought no, she was a, a like decent person and at, uh, as far as you knew, she was just the, uh, a, a person as far as I knew. I had no idea about the sexual relationships or between her and her son-in-law, between her, uh, what she had done with her daughter. I, I didn't even know until I had already been in prison for a while and got sent papers and was finally able to see the police reports. I didn't even know that her husband had been murdered before. Right. I, I, I didn't even know that. I had no idea. Okay, so Gary has an explanation for why the prints are there but he can't really remember touching the closet door or being in Helen's bedroom. He doesn't think it's a big deal, but it is to the cops. And now let's get back to the, the palm print, because that's like the only physical evidence that I they know, have that. right now. I so know that. It's, it's a little troubling. I know, I mean, I know that we touch stuff when we go into people's houses and stuff and our prints. As I said, I could have came up with 50 different lies. And I didn't. On how the print got there. Exactly. And I didn't. Now, lead investigator Leroy Dunning had a second reason to look at Gary Bennett. A partial palm print on the wall and his epilepsy, which some called a mental illness. His explanation of the handprint could certainly have been true. But it could also have just as easily left behind by the killer. So less than 48 hours after Helen Nardi was brutally stabbed to death... Leroy Dunning makes a phone call to the home of Gary Bennett. He wondered if Gary would mind coming in to look at some pictures of white cars. Remember the white car that Gary said he saw the night Helen was murdered? And even though it was bowling night, Gary agreed. At 6 p.m. that Friday night, just as he arrived at the station, Leroy Dunning turned Gary around and slapped a pair of handcuffs on him and told him he was under arrest for the murder of Helen Nardi. And according to court documents, he told Gary that he was going to fry in the electric chair. Gary was outraged and flew into a tantrum. In fact, Dunning would later say, he went into a rage the minute I told him. I've interviewed a lot of people and I've never had that reaction. So he, so he says you are now arrested for murder and he brings you into the station. What happens next? All right. I says, do you want an attorney? I said, yes, I do. He said, we're going to burn you in the electric chair unless you cooperate. I said, I want an attorney. And they still interrogated me for 12 hours. 
So this is pretty important. All questioning is supposed to stop once someone accused of a crime asks for an attorney. You know that little speech you've heard on every television cop show in history when an arrest is made? You know, those Miranda rights, the one that says you have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. An appeals judge would later describe those actions that night as flagrant police misconduct. Because as Gary explains, and as corroborated by case files, the questioning did not stop, and an attorney was never called. And that was basically, I've got, like I said, I've got it in here where, in a police report where uh, uh, his own partner is saying that uh, he had to go to uh, his boss and tell him that he was violating my rights and he didn't seem to care. Things were getting hot between us because he was, uh, he kept accusing me of something. I tell, kept telling him to stick it in his ear. They even talked Gary into going to the hospital to be examined as part of a rape kit test. I asked him why he would agree to that when they obviously were not honoring his request for an attorney. Yes, I, I, they said, do you want to prove your innocence? I said, how? They said, will you take a rape kit test? I said, what the hell are we doing standing here? Let's go. I want to prove that I got nothing to do with it. This is something else I wanted to point out right here was that they found a hair on the body, a hair on the, uh, on the fan, which was, they said was used as a weapon, a hair uh, on the bed. So what did that test reveal? Remember, a few pubic hairs were found on and around Helen's naked body. No hairs microscopically consistent with the head or pubic hairs of Gary Stanley Bennett Jr. were found on the specimen. So he was let go, and 26-year-old Gary Bennett believed his ordeal was over. He had no way of knowing his nightmare was just beginning. Coming next time, the secret weapon used by police to help them make an arrest. As you saw, cases that when you know, terrible crime happens uh, and law enforcement doesn't have sort of immediate answers, they um, center on a person as the a potential suspect and then, you know, sort of through tunnel vision, um, build a case around that person while ignoring um, signs that they may, in fact, not be the person. That's all for now. Be sure to click subscribe in the iTunes or Google Play Store or follow in the Stitcher Radio app so that you never miss an episode. I'm news columnist John A. Torres. You can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on the case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Thanks again for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Murder on the Space Coast is written and reported by John A. Torres. The editor is Mara Bellaby. The producer is Rob Landers.